0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning, and thank you for all those who are joining us online. We're delighted that you're with us as well. Will you please pray with me? Father, we do ask now as we come to your word, we pray that the words of my mouth the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing. They would be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock. You are redeemer. You're the one who loves us with an unquenchable love. So we pray that you would be with us, that your spirit might um, give us true insight into your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I hope you were here last week to enjoy all the festivities. We celebrated All Saints Day, which is always a big day at All Saints. Uh, We celebrated the end of our capital campaign, and of course we had a giant party out on the lawn with bouncy houses that my uh, children took full advantage of. Thankfully, no injuries, and when I thought about everything that happened last week, it seemed like the right word was joy. It was just joyful. It was such a joyful, full of life and delight and We come also to the end of our sermon series on All Saints Envisioned, and so we have two Sundays before we begin Advent. Next Sunday will be Christ the King Sunday, and so today we're sort of bridging those two things, kind of summing up everything that we said in the sermon series All Saints Envisioned, and of course preparing to celebrate Christ the King Sunday next week, which Brent will give his first sermon to us. And so I was over the last week thinking about everything that was culminated on Sunday and just thinking about this church and the five years we've been in this building and on this property. And of course I was reading Matthew 13 and thinking about a treasure. And I remembered something that happened on the first day we moved into this building and I lost a treasure. I had a box that was supposed to transport from our previous office to the new office. And inside of it was all my personal knickknacks, all the things like my degrees. There was a baseball from the Minnesota twins, 1991 world series team, which each of the players had signed allegedly. And there was, <clears throat> and there was, you know, Liverpool football club, paraphernalia, pictures of my family. Uh, I think there was my Bible that, uh, I got when I was ordained, I believe personal things like that It was a large box. And somehow, in a move, it disappeared. It's gone. No one knows where it went. And I imagined for a while that I would walk into Goodwill one day and just find it on a shelf and like, oh, these are all my things, and buy it and bring it back. But that never happened. The last person seen with the box was Randy Lochte, who moved out to Fredericksburg several years ago. So if anyone wants to go out there and see if my degrees are on Randy's wall, just be my guest, find out. It was sort of a funny thought because, of course, my degrees are worthless to somebody else. In fact, a lot of that stuff in that box is really only valuable to me. And when I pulled stuff out of it, if I ever will one day, if it's found again, they will be an illustration of me of all the things that I had really centered my life on, in my world, the things that I really valued. And these parables here from Matthew 13, they cause us to consider what we value and what we center our lives on. So that's what we'll talk about today. These three points, the value, the center, and joy. Value, center, joy. Two parables here in Matthew 13, they're parables about value. That's what they are. They're both similes about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven has something within it that is of inestimable value. That's what Jesus is saying. And when you find it, the treasure, the pearl, because of its value, you reorder and recenter your entire life. Some people are looking for it, like the merchant in the second parable here, looking for the idealized, perfect pearl, the pearl that is the definition of what pearlness is. And when they find it, they know they have it. Others are surprised when they encounter the treasure, like the man in the field. He wasn't particularly looking for this treasure. He was just walking along the field, going about his life, and suddenly there it was. But once he ran into it, he realized what he had found. So for the one who seeks... Or the one who is surprised. When the treasure is found, it provides a reordering and fundamental change for their lives. Notice what they both do. They sell all that they had. All their old treasures. All their old assets. All the things that they used to value so much. They liquidate them all because the new treasure is worth everything. And that, Jesus says, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It has a treasure within it. That is of such worth, such supremacy, that all the old treasures, all the old assets of our life, the things that we value, begin to be radically revalued. And they change. So back to my box. Or rather, your box. Imagine the box is yours. What's in it? What's in the box? What do you value? What gets your attention? What gets your repeated memories what gets your future planning? What do you want everyone to know is in the box, like the degrees that you want to put on your wall? What do you actually keep back in the corner of the box that you don't want anyone to know about? In other words, the question is what have you centered your life on? This parable is telling us that there's a treasure in the kingdom of heaven of such worth that it will, that it actually must reorder everything within your box and become the very center, redefining all the values. So, what is this treasure in the field? What is this pearl of great price? Kids, who is it? What's the answer? Jesus. That's right. Good job. I have a word with the Sunday school teachers after this. Uh, I'm joking. But what it means is this it is Jesus. But this parable is saying that Jesus is not some quaint knickknack that you can add to your box. The parable does not go like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a guy who's walking in a field and found a cool rock and put it in his pocket and then kept on walking. The parable does not go, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking to find pearls and found a decent one and added it to his collection. No, the parable says you either recognize his unlimited value and reorder your life around him, or you leave the field, or you leave the marketplace. Why? Christianity believes that Jesus is a preeminent, supreme value because he is the very center of reality, the very center point of the world, of history. And he cannot be one of the things. He is the one thing, the center. And I know that's a strong claim. It feels all-encompassing, and it is. But nowhere and at no point does the Bible ever back away from it. In fact, our Colossians reading from the New Testament, the Apostle Paul here insists upon this fact in Colossians chapter 1. And I know this is a very complex reading. Most of Paul's writing is complex. But really these verses here, the first section, the first paragraph there, verses 15 through 20, most scholars really believe was an early hymn or an early poem in the church that was written to encapsulate the fundamental beliefs of the early Christian church. And you can see there that um, perhaps it's not super elegant in English. It's a little more elegant in the Greek. But there are two stanzas, one in verse 15 and one in verse 18. And they have a lot of repeated themes. But then right in the middle, like a chorus, is verse 17. And what is verse 17 saying? That Jesus is before all things. That is before in time and also before in place or rank. And in everything, in him, everything is held together. That's Paul's focus In Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is before everything. See, the people in Colossae at this church, they had heard the gospel of Jesus. They had found the pearl of great price. But something had happened in this church. Other teachers had come around, and they had argued that Christ wasn't really the center, that there were lots of spiritual powers out in the world, many kinds of spirituality. And if you wanted to grow spiritually, You had to actually embrace all these different forms of spirituality. You had to take them all into account. They were saying that Jesus was just a nice pearl on a pearl string necklace, just one of the pearls. And Paul is writing to remind these people in the church and us that no, Christ is above all things and everything. This is how the New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, explains this section. He sums it up this way. Paul is saying here, that Christianity isn't simply about a particular way of being religious among others. It isn't a particular system of how to be saved in the here on this life or in the hereafter. It isn't even simply a different way of holiness. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. The center of all things. Now this section here in Colossians, it's, it's rich. I mean you could spend a month just mining the depths of this passage, and, and maybe you should. In fact, I encourage you to do so. But in our time, I just want to focus on three things coming out of Colossians chapter 1 here that particularly show us Jesus as the center. The first is the image of God. Verse 15 here, Jesus Christ is the image of God, and it's backed up or repeated in verse 19 here that Jesus Christ has the fullness of God. He is full God. The fullness of God dwells within him. In other words, Paul is saying, if you want to know who God is, the divine, who he really is and what God actually is like. Jesus is your answer. If you have seen me, you have seen God the Father, Jesus says in John 14. It's like saying to the pearl hunter, you've been looking for the ideal pearl, the one we all carry in our minds when we think of what pearlness is. Well, here's that pearl in real life. Here is God in real life, the invisible ideal, the image of the divine right before you in the flesh, and you can touch him. Second, Paul says here that Jesus holds the old created world and the new redeemed creation together. What do I mean by that? Verse 16 here says that this world, all of it, all that you see, the beauty, the majesty, everything that you see around you, the the wonder of this world, the splendor of this world, that it was brought into existence by Jesus. And that he was the one for whom it was actually made in the first place. In other words, all of the beauty of this world was his idea. He wanted this world to be as rich and beautiful and awe-inspiring as it really is. That's the first stanza. Second stanza here comes because the old world, this created world that we live in, we know it often sounds like our Old Testament passage, doesn't it? Wilderness, wild beasts, jackals, drought, evil, pain, and brokenness. We know that this beautiful world, despite its wonder and awe, has been ruptured and ravaged by sin, by other people's sin, by our own sin, by sin at work in the world. And so God said, as He says here in Isaiah chapter 43, because of that, behold, I will do a new thing, a new creation. I will erase, I will blot out the evil and the sin of this world. I will water the dry world. I will bring this world to life again so that it might be born anew. This is the second stanza, that the one for whom the world was made is also the one who is redeeming the broken world and repairing it and fixing it. Or as Paul says succinctly here, Christ is both firstborn over all creation and firstborn from the dead, the old and the new. He's head of the church. He's the first to rise from the dead. He is the one through whom God is dealing with our sin and bringing peace into the world, the one through whom the new creation has now begun. He holds together the old and the new. And finally this in verse 20. Jesus is reconciling everything. All the broken shards of this world, of your life, of history, he's reconciling them in himself. How? By the cross, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the church I grew up in, when I was a kid, we didn't have um, a cross like this behind uh, in the center of the church behind the pulpit, like we do here. We had instead actually verse eighteen of Colossians chapter one in just large font and like a big banner, and it said that in all things he might be preeminent. But you see, that verse and this cross is the same message. The cross you see right there declares the very same thing. That Christ is preeminent over everything. Over life, over death, over creation, over all the spiritual powers in the world. Because the cross is the reconciliation point between the old world and the new world. He's the reconciliation between the physical and the spiritual. Between heaven and earth, as Paul says in both stanzas of of Colossians chapter 1. Between God and me. Between God and you between the perfect ideal, the one that we can always see but can never attain, and the actuality, between the myths that explain the world and the reality that is the world. The cross is where all the paradoxes of the world are reconciled and realized because the cross and Jesus himself is the center of reality. He is where the divine and the human meet. In him. And the cross was where one man was what human beings were always meant to be the ideal individual. And at the cross, God showed that at his very life, at the core of who he is, is self donating love. Not power, not privilege, not pleasure, even, but self giving, self donating love. At the very center of all reality is the God who gives himself in love our 50-plus community, just recently took a trip to the painted churches in Schulenburg, Texas. And I love church architecture. And I was really jealous. I didn't get to go. I wanted to get on the bus and, you know, maybe just put some gray in my beard or something and put like a, you know, climb in and see if I could, you know, stealthily get on board the bus. I'm sure, actually, after the first service, they said, we would have let you come if you just asked. I said, well, but I love our church architecture. Whenever I go to a new um, city or anywhere, I always like to find the old traditional churches. And if I can get in and walk around and look around, I do, and I love to. Because I think, especially traditional churches, they say everything that I just said, and they say what Colossians 1 says through architecture. The whole church is laid out in the shape of what? A shape of a cross. And when you walk forward into church, you walk on the path of the cross. And when you come forward to take communion, when you receive the body and blood of Jesus, where do you receive it? At the very center of the cross of the church, at the place where heaven and earth are reconciled and met, in other words. Because that's where the cross, where X marks the spot, in other words, One of my favorite cathedrals is Chartres Cathedral in France. It's a beautiful cathedral. You know what they have right there in the middle of that place? They have a giant labyrinth. You know what a labyrinth is? It's like a maze. And as you walk through this maze, it's like an illustration of walking through the ups and downs and ins and outs of life, the bewilderment of life, trying to get to the very core of what life is all about. And that labyrinth at that place in the church is saying that the core of what life is about, the very center of life and the very center of reality is this point, the cross itself, right here, right there. The churches in Schulenburg also have this. They have the ceilings that are painted like sky, bright blue with gold stars all in them. And often churches, even here, we have like a clear story where light shines in as if the heavens itself are coming down and they're meeting at this point at the center, at the cross. Often there's a beautiful painting or a stained glass of Christ at this point right over here, which is Christ ruling over all things in the heavens, called Christ Pantocrator, which just means ruling over all. In other words, all of that imagery is suggesting that at this point, Christ is ruling over all things, heaven and earth, because here at the cross, Christ reconciled heaven and earth, God and man and us to one another. The center point of reality, the center point of history The ideal to which we are all wanting and looking for is finally realized. The self-giving love of God on the cross, binding a world together. And that's why in Matthew 13, in our parable, the man who's in the field and finds the the treasure in the field, he goes, he sells all that he has, and he buys it. He doesn't buy it with regret. He doesn't buy it as a risk. He buys it in joy, it says. Joy. Because he realizes, what I hope you realize, is that this treasure, this center of the world, is his. That all that Jesus did was for him, was for you. Was for you. Verse 21, Colossians chapter 1 says this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds, who were basically an enemy of God, an enemy of reality... What Jesus has done is is he has now reconciled you to him in his body through the cross so that you are no longer an enemy. You are in fact being made holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, all the broken shards are being put back together by him and in him. And that is good news. You see, Christians do not just see Christ as a good idea as a great moral teacher, as a wonderful community to belong to, as a good option among other options. Now Christians find Jesus beautiful. We take joy in him. I came across this story about a rock collector when I was doing research for this parable. And it's a guy named Roy Wettstein, which Wettstein I think is like a, you know, a flex on whetstone, which I feel like is a pretty impressive last name for a rock collector. I mean, it's like, he knows what his life is about, right? Well, he went to a rock show to buy um, some rocks. And of course, what else do you do at a rock show? Well, he's on his way. His boys give him both a $5. He's got $10. They he say, buy a rock for us, dad. She says, okay. He's at the rock show and he finds a Tupperware you know, thing full of agates. Agates are like blue and red, kind of swirly looking rocks that are very common. I don't know. I'm not a rock collector, but that was in the box. And then in there was a giant potato-shaped rock that was kind of ugly. So Roy asked this guy how much for that potato-shaped rock. And the man said, no one wants to buy it. It's ugly. It's just in here with all these agates that are kind of pretty looking. And so just 10 bucks. So he took those two $5 from his sons, gave it to him, and took that home. You know what that potato-looking rock was? It was the largest star sapphire in the world it was 1,500 carats. Once it was cut open, it was worth not $10, but $10 million. And of course, they asked him, well, Roy, what are you feeling? And of course, what do you think Roy's response was? He said, I'm overjoyed. I can barely contain myself. Of course. He was reeling in joy because he knew what he had found. We are in the field of the kingdom of heaven this morning. Here's Jesus, the center. He will not be added to your life as an addition, as something that you can add into your life. He is too much for that. He is the center, or you are on tilt. If you do not know Jesus this morning, will you come? Sell what you have, all your old treasures, all the things that you used to value so much, that you do value so much. Embrace him. And you will find that you have lost nothing, but only gained everything. And for you who have traveled with Jesus for a long time, like me, ask yourself this question that I've been asking myself and been very convicted by actually this week How much joy do I regularly take in Jesus? How much do I enjoy Him? Have I been pushing Jesus out of the center of my box, moving Him to the margins? Because you see, I believe that our joy in Jesus actually does correspond to us keeping centered on him. And if you find yourself lacking joy in Christ right now, let me suggest a few ways to recenter on Christ. Turn to the very beginning of your liturgies here, the very first page, and you'll notice there's an announcement. Advent begins Sunday, November 28th. Advent is nearly here. Advent is always the beginning of the Christian calendar, the beginning of the Christian year. And Advent is a time of preparation, a time of beginning again, a time of clearing the ground, an expectation of what Christ will do in you and through you in your life in this coming year. So here's my encouragement. Engage with us. Be here. We also have an Advent guide, as it's mentioned here, that will be available for you for home worship. Take it. Use it. Use it every day. And on Wednesdays, Every week during Advent, for the four weeks of Advent, we'll have in the chapel on Wednesdays at noon, a Eucharist service. Come, make time in your schedule, prioritize it, give your attention to it. For there is joy to be had at the center of all things, where Christ is. He is the past and he is the future. He's the alpha and the omega. He is the truth speaking in love, in total love, He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field. And if you gain him, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, we do ask this morning that we might be hid within Christ, that we might be united to him who is the center of all things, that we might be remade again and again in his image, that as we hold on to him, we might hold on to the very center of all reality. By your grace, I pray that you would enable that to happen. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.